Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the dream of retirement for Canadians. Everyone thinks about that day. Stop working, relax, enjoy life. Here's the question. How much money do you need saved up? in your nest egg to have the retirement you want. It used to be a million dollars. Remember when people would say that you need a million dollars? The new nest egg target now, this just out from BMO Financial, $1.7 million. That's what the average Canadian thinks they need to retire comfortably. $1.7 million. Who the heck has that kind of money? Most people struggling to make ends meet right now. Never mind having 1.7 million saved up. Rabina Ahmed Hawk standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this here. This is a single working mom, Vanessa Malloy, talking to Global News. Have a listen to how she tries to make ends meet. I try and buy fruit that doesn't go bad really fast. I go in and I spend $100 on it. I look at it and I go, you know, 18 months ago, this I would have gotten double this for $100. It used to be I'd have a little bit left for some fun extras, whereas now whatever would have been left isn't and is used for the essentials. You just want to put your head in the sand and not think about it, but you know that's not the reality. You can't ignore these things. It definitely weighs on me. How is she supposed to save up $1.7 million? All right, let's discuss it now with my guest, Rabina ahmed Hawk. Rabina is a personal finance expert. Rabina, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, I remember speaking to a financial expert who told me like a million, $1 million was how much you should try to save up. That was that was the advice at one, once upon a time, was it not? It was, and there's also advice that we've been hearing for decades that we need to save 10% of our income in order to save enough for retirement once when we start working. And that right. doesn't really work for everybody. If you're, if you're a woman, for example, who's taken time away to have kids, so you've gone on mat leave, maybe even longer, uh, or you're working part-time, you need to save even more of that income in order to get to uh, a retirement nest egg that's actually going to support you through retirement. So I think it's really dangerous when we get to these hard numbers if they actually are um, a target or just what people think. Because in this survey, for example, it's more what people think they need to save rather than what BMO is telling you what you have to save. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, I guess, people thinking about their dream retirement, whether they want to travel or whatever it is they want to do, and how much money would they need? How long do they expect to live a long, healthy life? And $1.7 million, I mean, my goodness, Rubina, like nobody has this kind of money, do they? I mean, maybe if you've got equity in a house, but do most people have anything near this? Well, according to this survey, 44% of Canadians are confident that they are going to have enough money to retire. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to have the $1.7 million, but they're confident that they have managed their money in a way that they'll have a, a nice, healthy retirement. I think the real message here is that um, saving for retirement is a long game. You have to start early. You have to do it uh, consistently. And you don't have to chase the game. So it's not about timing the market or getting into Bitcoin or getting into marijuana stocks, which I've been hearing tons about in the last few years, how to make quick money. It's more about being confident that I'm saving money consistently every single month into my RRSP and that I'm investing it in products that over time are going to serve me better. And those are conversations you should be having with your financial advisor, or if you're doing it DIY, really reading all the right books and doing all your great research uh, before deciding what kind of stocks work for you or what kind of investments work for you. When you take a look at how much people have got saved up right now, this was another interesting part of this report from BMO yesterday. It says the national average, this is the national across Canadian average of how much people have in their RRSP right now that amount on average is $144,613. That's the average amount in an RRSP right now. And that is actually up 2%. So 
you know, you're talking 1.7 million. The average amount people have got saved up is 144 grand. You got a long way to go. Yeah, and absolutely. Those are average amounts. There's definitely going to be people who have much more than that, and those who are yeah. starting out are going to have much less than that. So I think really what's really important to know is that uh, the more you focus on your retirement savings early, you, the more the bigger nest egg you're going to have down the road. So saving yeah. small amounts of money starting in your 20s is much more advantageous than starting to save a large amount of money in your 40s, which is what some people do. They wait until they're in their higher earning years to put more money away. But it makes a lot more sense to start saving when you're young so that if yeah. maybe not 1.7, but you get to a number that's going to support you through retirement. Yeah, I mean, I've got I got two teenage boys, and I've that's one thing I've talked to them about. Like, you know, you should think about putting some money away right now. You know, I wish I had done that when I was young and young and dumb. But uh, you know, you do you make you make decisions when you're young, and then you think later. Maybe if I had started putting it away, like if you start you start getting that compound interest working for you, right? Yeah, and I think that young people today are much more savvy. I mean, I'm a Gen Xer, so I can speak to that uh, that uh, demographic. Um, I don't remember having robust money conversations about investment and long-term savings, even though money was a conversation in my family, probably much more than in, in most families. But I still don't remember, you know, someone sitting down and explaining compound interest to me or explaining yeah. to me that you shouldn't take money out of this investment. It's better for you to save for that thing that you want rather than, you know, uh, cut short that investment journey by taking money out. These are things that I think that young people, because there's so much more access now to information, so much more access now to historical information where they can look at and say, hey, if I put this money in 15 years ago, it would have equaled this much. So if I follow that same method today, I can sort of guess that in 15 years, this money can grow to that much as well. What, what are you hearing from people in this climate? We got such a weird economy right now, and there's, there's a lot of concern. We got inflation. We got, we got rising interest rates. I mean, I think you could hear the concern in the voice of that single mom that we played there, just trying to buy groceries every week for, for her family. I mean, what are you hearing from people? Because this survey also said that 74% of people surveyed by BMO here said they're concerned about current economic conditions and how it's going to affect their finances. So that's a large majority of people who are worried here. Are you hearing that from people too? The number one concern I'm hearing, I am hearing that from everybody, um, is about mortgage payments. Because a lot of people have gotten into mortgage payments on a variable rate mortgage, and they have, in some cases, seen those payments double in the last year because of where interest rates have gone. And um, if you are 10 years into your mortgage, you may not feel it as much because you, you've been able to pay your mortgage down. And the, the payment, yes, it's increased, but it, you're not feeling as bad about it because you don't have as much debt to pay down. Maybe you've got some money that you can put as lump sum payments. But if you purchased your house in the last two or three years, you're really feeling it. You're at the top end of your mortgage. You're paying this higher interest rate that maybe you didn't budget into your household budget. And that means all of a sudden that renovation you wanted to do doesn't seem possible. That vacation doesn't seem possible. And things like saving for your retirement or other long-term goals all often go by the wayside when uh, all your other payments are going up. Rubina, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right, here we go with our great natural gas debate now, LNG. Should we keep pumping all that natural gas out of the ground? What about climate change? Here in British Columbia, companies are building the LNG Canada project. This is the biggest mega project in Canadian history. Some people want to shut it down to reduce climate change. Now, here's the thing, though. There is an argument that LNG, liquefied natural gas, is actually good for the climate if you sell it to other countries and they burn that instead of burning coal it's less emission intensive when you burn natural gas than coal so you'd actually be a good thing for the environment and maybe bc and alberta should get credit for that okay we got a great panel standing by here to discuss cody Battershill is the founder of canada action it's a pro oil and gas group cody thanks for coming on thanks mike for having me Thank you for doing it. Peter McCartney on the line. Peter is a climate campaigner at the Wilderness Committee. Hi, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, guys, thank you for doing this. First, let's go to Danielle Smith here, the Premier of Alberta, very gung-ho on natural gas. And here she is making the case for LNG. Have a listen. The federal government has given mixed messages 
on the role that they see natural gas playing in reducing global greenhouse gas emissions. So I want to see if they're making some progress on that, as well as if there's any additional ways that we can boost the demand for natural gas. The conversion from coal to natural gas on electricity seems to be going well. Okay, so she makes the argument there that if we can get countries burning our natural gas instead of burning coal, we'll all be better off. She had a meeting yesterday with Trudeau. Cody, did you see that handshake between uh, Danielle Smith and Justin Trudeau yesterday? I thought maybe someone missed someone's hand or something happened there, but it looked, definitely looked a little awkward. Okay, I don't think she wanted to shake his hand. What do you? How did you interpret that? Uh, I... I I don't know. I it, it was definitely a little awkward. <laughs> yeah, you could hear, you could feel the temperature dropping in the room there. That was that was weird. Okay, Cody, give me your take here. LNG, you make the case for LNG here. You think it's good for the environment, right? It is good for the environment, and it's good for local Indigenous communities and local uh, Canadian communities and our national economy. There's a couple things happening right now. Number one, coal powered demand is at an all time high. Number two, natural gas demand is at an all-time high and will continue to grow for decades. And number three, investment in wind and solar is also growing. All three of those things exist at the same time because the population is growing. People want a higher quality of life. And we have recognized now that we should not be doing business and relying on countries like Russia that are not reliable and that do not share our values for both protecting the climate and people and, and, and the environment. So what is that? where does that leave us as Canadians? It, it, it's the smart thing to do when we maximize the value of our exports and our resources. And simply shutting down Canadian natural gas production and simply not building these projects means other countries benefit. The United States, Australia, Qatar, all these other countries have built massive industries exporting massive volumes of natural gas, often with uh, uh, lower standards, again, for, for protecting people on the planet than Canada. While a lot of these groups, like Peter, has been saying to shut it all down. And what about all the Indigenous communities that support Coastal Gas okay. Link and LNG Canada? What about the Heisel that want to build Peter LNG? There's okay. so much more to this than the know-everything-shut-it-down narrative. Okay, Peter McCartney, go ahead. Yeah, so the problem with gas is that when it leaks out into the atmosphere, it traps 86 times as much heat as carbon dioxide, so it it warms the climate faster than coal, which is the only relevant metric for anyone that's already experiencing the worst heat waves, wildfires, and floods um, that we've seen in this province in the last few years. And so um, it is true that, you know, burning gas at the source reduce, uh, generates less carbon pollution than coal. But when you look at the life cycle emissions of it, the gas that is uh, vented into the atmosphere during the fracking process, um, the gas that it takes to transport across the province, and the in incredible amount of energy it takes to burn, uh, that is created by burning gas, to liquefy that gas, to freeze it to negative 162 degrees Celsius, it wipes all of that climate benefit away. Um, the LNG Canada project will be the most polluting project this country has ever, or this province has ever seen. And it will generate more climate pollution than every passenger vehicle in British Columbia. So all the work that we're doing um, to, you know, take transit, to bike to work and, and compost, all of this good work we're doing to reduce our climate pollution is going to be wiped out by this one facility. And it's the single thing that is preventing us okay. from meeting our climate target. Okay, so when, when, you, when people make the argument, and Danielle Smith said this yesterday in her in her frosty meeting there with Trudeau. She said that Alberta would like to receive like some climate emission credits for producer for exporting natural gas because the way she argues it, if we can sell like China our natural gas and they burn that instead of coal, the planet's going to be better off. So therefore Alberta should receive some emission credits for that. They should get credit for helping the planet. You're obviously not buying that, Peter. Yeah, it's just never going to work. And anyone that works on climate policy will tell you that it's not going to work because they would have to prove which coal plant in China shut down because they were burning natural gas. And then they would have to convince um, the government of China to then offer those emissions uh, credits to us for free. Or the gas companies are going to have to take a massive loss on the gas that they sell in order to buy these credits from uh, the Chinese government, 
or more likely they're going to try and hoodwink the public into paying for the emissions credits um, that are supposedly generated somewhere else. It's just like okay. you keep using these increasingly complex uh, systems to avoid the very simple reality, which is the sooner we stop burning fossil fuels, the sooner the climate disasters that we are seeing all over the world stop getting worse. Cody, what do you say to that? Well, and it's also, though, nuclear and hydro that Peter's against. It's, it's, I, I say this with respect, but we should almost nickname, give Peter the nickname of uh, Doomsday. Uh, the reality is... Have you looked outside? Canadian LNG will have the lowest emissions of all LNG projects hydropower in the world, and natural gas demand is growing. So Peter is, I guess, suggesting that the U.S. and Qatar and Australia should sell their gas for the highest price and we should shut Canada down. All of these protests and all of this fear-mongering and doomsday uh, uh, stuff that Peter's talking about, we know that we need energy security and we need environmental protection, and Canada is the leader in doing that. I don't know why we would want the U.S. to benefit. I'm not sure why Peter wants other gas producers to seize this opportunity while Canadian families and communities uh, lose out. Well, let me ask. Well, let me get Peter. Let me get let me get Peter's response to that. Peter, go ahead. So, LNG Canada is the most expensive LNG proposed anywhere in the world right now, which means that even if LNG Canada was to come online, if we were to double our amount of production of LNG, the U.S. and Qatar and all of these other countries would still be producing gas. The truth is, the International Energy Agency says that to maintain a safe climate, we have to decrease global gas demand by three percent every year through to 2030. Um, and so all of these liquefied natural gas projects, whether they're in Canada or Australia or the U.S. or Qatar, are preventing us from doing that. And the sooner Peter, that we can rein them in, the better. Peter is oh. just repeating falsehoods. As the IEA recently came out again just a couple of days ago and said we need more oil and gas production. In, in any, security. We need in any realistic LNG. scenario that the IEA has put forward, they have said that gas demand will start to decline this decade. That is not a falsehood. That is a fact. Well, you can look it up. Last week, Peter. Okay. Okay. Uh, let me play a clip here for you, Cody, on on the econo- or the environmental impact of, of fracking, sort of taking this gas out of the ground with, using the fracking method, and what kind of impact that has on the environment. I'll get your thoughts. So this is David Suzuki on fracking. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. Fracking is one of the dumbest technologies there is. We have no idea what is under the ground you know it's we're kind of because we're an air-breathing land lubber living on the top skin of the planet we think out of sight there's nothing down there we have no idea what we're doing when we pump vast amounts of water down there we have no idea whether it'll end up contaminating the, our drinking water we don't know but we're just going to go down there and try to uh, to frack the as much gas as we can get out of the ground this is just i think crazy Cody, what do you say to that? I don't know if that's like comedy. It's it's just fear and falsehoods. It's just uh, the U.S. has reduced their emissions because of fracturing and producing more natural gas, and they switch from more coal power to more natural gas power. We've been fracturing for decades and decades and decades all over the world, and all of these tired, old, fear-mongering uh, narratives just need to... to get back to uh, a place where we can have honest conversations. Canada is a leader in reducing methane and flaring. That's why other countries come to Canada to find out how we regulate the industry. That's why Indigenous communities are partners and are producing oil and gas to support LNG Canada, Coastal Gas Link, Cedar, and other projects. And that's why okay. tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Canadians are, are able to feed their families working in our locally produced resources. It is okay, Pete. Ridiculous. Peter, your, quickly, your thoughts on fracking, then we'll fit a break in here. Go ahead. Look, if you want to have an honest conversation about the future of fossil fuels, it's that we have to stop burning them and that trying to put our country, um, you know, double down on the gas extraction that is causing climate change when the rest of the world is trying to actively move off our product as fast as possible is a Stupid decision environmentally, but it's also a stupid decision economically. And we should be looking forward to the industries that are actually going to thrive 
in a world where we are no longer burning fossil fuels and support the workers and communities that currently rely on them. All right. We're continuing our LNG debate. Cody Battershill, Peter McCartney are my guests. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Harman in Surrey. Hi. Hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. The thing I don't understand is you hear this argument that natural gas takes a lot of fracking and long-term emissions tied to it. Well, the same can be said about EV batteries. Have you seen the machinery that used for those mining projects? I do a lot of construction, and I know those machines take over 1,000 gallons of diesel per shift, and they run right around the clock. And it's just, to me, it's just, you look at the biomass over there, they have to bring in loggers to chop down the area, and all the equipment to, with these machinery, it takes a lot of trucking. A lot of these machinery has to be assembled on site. So it comes on trucks in different parts, and they assemble them on site, too. So I just don't see that argument being a viable argument. Okay, thank you for the call. Well, Peter, we've talked on the show before about electric vehicles and some of the environmental impacts of batteries and digging up these rare earth minerals to make the batteries. What do you say to that? Like EV, you you say EVs are still better for the environment overall, though, right? Yeah, I mean, so if you look at the climate pollution specifically, that uh, EVs versus Fossil fuel powered vehicles cause it's no contest. EVs are a fraction of the uh, of the actual climate pollution, but of course there is a, a large environmental impact for batteries. Um, and yeah. a recent study has shown that by prioritizing public transit, uh, walkable communities, and cycling, we can reduce the need for EV batteries by ninety percent. Um, and so that's why we really do need to put these solutions first. EVs are good. Um, you know, we sh- we should use them in applications where they're needed. But the priority needs to be getting people out of their cars and and finding more sustainable ways to get around. Cody, you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, we should be supporting Canadian mining and low emission, non-emitting Canadian nuclear, small modular reactors and hydro and wind and solar. Peter's admitted in the past, we don't have storage technology yet for wind and solar. So I'm just perplexed why we wouldn't want to produce low emission Canadian natural gas to make sure that electric vehicles in China are powered by our natural gas instead of coal. Coal's at an all-time record. And Peter's been saying for more than 10 years, oil demand's going to peak, oil demand's going to peak, natural gas demand's going to peak. And what's happened? The opposite. So Squeeze we another call. Above, and we need to stop fear-mongering. Squeeze another call in. Lorne in Langley. Hi, Lorne. Go ahead. Hello. Thank you for being yep. on the show. Or having me on the show, getting a little nervous here. First time on the air. Uh, frequent listener and just wanting to touch base and about the fracking and the fresh water. Uh, yep. Fracking is terrible for the fresh water. Canada is one of the largest countries with fresh water resources. What we are doing to our fresh water is ruining the fresh water and the rural communities who have been fracked um, are having their, their fresh water start on fire and the big corporations don't take this into any account because these, these are small populated areas okay okay lauren thank you for calling i appreciate you listening to the show cody what do you say to him i mean in canada we have some of the best energy regulation in the world and if that's happening then the communities and the energy regulators are going to be talking to the companies about improving i know that there's a very popular documentary where people were lighting gas on fire and from their faucets and that turned out to be uh, staged so uh certainly if there's an impact, it needs to be addressed. But we are a leader, and that's why other countries come to Canada to figure out how okay. we are responsibly producing our resources and always trying to get better. Peter, we got 30 seconds left, so you get the last word today. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, Cody can talk about the best environmental regulations all he wants, but the truth is there's no other industry where we allow them to take tens of billions of liters of fresh water from local lakes and rivers, uh, pump toxic chemicals into it, and then dispose of it untreated. The fracking industry operates in northeast BC like the wild, wild west, and if it was as regulated as Cody thinks it is, they wouldn't be allowed to operate. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act... That sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people 
and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. All right, let's talk about traffic safety outside our schools now. I remember when my sons were small going to elementary school, we used to drop them off at their school in the old family minivan there. And I'll tell you what, you had to be super, super careful around there because it was it was a bit of a dance going on. There were so many parents and cars all driving up to this school at the same time letting their kids off at school or picking them up at the end of the day, it got pretty hairy. I'll tell you, they had a traffic, a crossing guard there, but even she had her hands full, just making sure people are being safe, watching out for these kids. It can get crazy. I've heard this from a lot of parents. How do we keep kids safe when we're doing that school drop-off? When you talk to a concerned Surrey parent about that in just a moment here, have a listen to this here. Sergeant Brian Montague from the Vancouver Police Department. He now happens to be a Vancouver City Councillor. Here he is about uh, safety outside and driving in school zones. Have a listen to this. 8 o'clock to 5 p.m. every day, every school day. It's now 30 kilometers an hour around school zones. We want parents and drivers to obey those speed limits. We will have very um, little tolerance for, for those that put the safety of kids at risk. And our enforcement officers will be out and if they catch someone speeding or uh, involved in dangerous driving behaviors around school zones, they will be ticketed. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Danielle Cummings. Danielle is a concerned mom in Surrey. Her kids go to Latimer Road Elementary School in Surrey, and she's been speaking out about the school drop-off situation at her kids' school. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Danielle, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for talking with me. Yeah, you bet. Okay, and good for you for speaking out on this, because when I was reading your email about this, about the situation at your kid's school, I was getting deja vu on this, because I kind of remember similar situations when my own kids were small. So let's talk about this. So tell me about the situation there at your ch- your children's school. So um, along 192nd is where the school is at. There is a, um, a no park or no um, stopping zone. Um, there's signs that show the 30 kilometer zone for school zone that's completely blocked from these vehicles that park right up onto the sidewalk along 192. Um, some of the vehicles completely block a sidewalk, all four tires on the sidewalk. Um, they're nearly hitting kids or parents as they're trying to park up on the sidewalk. I was one that's almost been hit. My son almost has been hit. My mother's been hit, almost hit a couple times from a car coming up onto a sidewalk. And that's just, just the people that I know of that's in my family that's almost been hit. Other parents have had the same situation. We have contacted the city multiple times over the past many years. I've only been, at, been with the school for four years. Right. And this problem has been for many years before that. And we still haven't had a solution. Okay, so when you're describing, that sounds like parking chaos there and, and obviously a dangerous situation. So when you're talking about people who are parking up on the sidewalk, that's obviously, you're not allowed to park there, right? They're parking illegally. Mm-hmm. Is that right? We've okay. Had by- we've had bylaws there. We've had RCMP there. But they've, they're only there for the, the day. The cars are yeah. not there for that one day. Next morning, they're all back. It's, un- it's unfortunate because bylaws can't be there every day. Police can't be there every day. There has to be a permanent solution. We, all of us parents that are concerned about this, we think there needs to be a permanent barrier that cars can physically cannot park there. Okay, because people aren't paying attention. That they it sounds like a lot of maybe a lot of parents know you're not allowed to park there, but they park there anyway. Oh, they do know. Yeah, oh, <laughs> they yeah. Don't care. <laughs> and why are they doing that? Like this is they're parking there where they drop their kids off. Is that what's going on? Yep, they park yeah. and then they they just stay there until. They bring their kids in. Yeah, yeah, I, I I can understand. How do you do it when you drop your own children off? How do you uh, how do you work it? There is plenty of parking up 
decides roads. We There's a ton of parents that park up the side roads. I park up 60B, which is a side road right next to, next to the, um, the crosswalk that we cross at, yep. which actually that crosswalk is very dangerous, and we've contacted City about that crosswalk as well because the illegal parkers also block children from trying to cross that crosswalk, which I've actually witnessed a small toddler being just a foot away from a car almost hitting them in that oh. crosswalk. Yeah, their front tires were in that crosswalk. Oh boy, and I you- was shaking that whole the rest of the whole day, and still, city won't do anything about it. I feel like a child needs to be killed in order for the city or someone to listen. Speaking to Danielle Cummings, Danielle is a concerned Surrey mom about the situation, traffic outside her, her children's school. So uh, when you describe the, um, the crosswalk there, Danielle, do you have a crossing guard on duty there? There's a crossing guard at the light crosswalk, the crosswalk at the lights at 192 and 60th. But the crosswalk that we have, I think it's 60B Street, which a lot of the parents park up that road, so they use that crosswalk. That's the one that's the most dangerous because there's nothing helping the kids cross that. And then we also have, it's just just chaos. It's complete chaos. Yeah. Is this a busy school? Like this is, we're talking about Latimer Elementary School. Is there, is it a big school? Is it busy there in the morning? Oh, it's very busy. And then pickup is the same situation. It's, it's completely the same situation at 2.30 at pickup as well. Right. So, you know, I think a lot of parents can relate to this because I've talked to parents who have described similar situations outside their own school. It's like when everybody is showing up at the same time and everyone wants to get as close as possible to drop their kid off, this is where it can get it can get hairy. So, you know, it sounds like you're describing something that's dangerous, not only for maybe kids getting out of a vehicle, but also pedestrians on the sidewalk, too. Right. Oh, yeah, it's it. It could be anyone walking, trying to walk down that sidewalk. We actually had a child. I've seen a child trying to tie his shoe on the sidewalk while he's walking to school. And a car honks at him to make him move because that car wants to park on that sidewalk. Oh, my God. Get off the sidewalk. I'm trying to. This parking is in front of Latimer. Oh, yeah. Get off the sidewalk. I'm trying to park here, kid. Exactly. Like this, yeah, this, this is not, this doesn't make any sense. Okay, Danielle, we've, I've got a statement here we've just received from the city of Surrey. So let me read a bit of this to you and see what you think of this. So it says, after receiving concerns about children and pedestrian safety in this area, the city began design work on safety improvements. The design for asphalt curbing is currently being finalized. Once completed... The curbing upgrades will improve pedestrian safety and help resolve the issue of illegal parking. In the interim, the concerns regarding illegal parking are being dealt with through bylaw enforcement. That's the end of the statement. Is that true? Are they are are, are there bylaw officers down there handing out tickets? No, we oh. we get either bylaw or police, one of the two, um, in a school year about two to three times. To, like and they're there for that one day and then they're gone and then they'll come back one or two times throughout the year and that's it. But that's okay, so three it, days out of the school year that they're in the rest of the days of the school year there's cars parked there. Okay, so so, that, that so occasionally help. do they give and so on the odd on the odd occasion when they are there do they actually give out tickets to people? The times that I've overheard I've only heard them giving warnings. I haven't actually physically okay. seen them give tickets. Yeah. So what do you think of this explanation from the city? Well, we're working on it here. We're designing, we're sort of redesigning the curb here to try and stop this illegal parking. Is that going on? Have you seen any evidence of that? I have not seen anything, no. Okay. I have not heard about this, no. Okay. How do your, how do your other, your, your other uh, parents, the parents that you know there at the school, do they all feel the same way as you? There's many that feel the same way. I'm, they're just not as vocal as I am. So. Yeah, yeah. How many kids do you have there? I have two. You got to okay, and um, so obviously, this is concerning for you. Like, you know, have you have your kid? Have you ever felt like your ki- your kids were in danger there? Yeah, because my oldest actually was one that I saw almost get hit by a car. Yeah, that tried to yeah. park up on the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah. Do a and lot that of parents sure lit a fire under my butt when he tries to hit my kid. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you one bit. And um, do you think that and this is like? 
what do you think goes through the minds of people who are just sort of breaking the rules like this, even though they probably know they're not supposed to do this? It's just like a question of, like, I remember when I, my kids were small, for a lot of parents, it's like, look, we all leading busy lives. We want to do, we want to drop our kids off at school and get on with our day. I get it. So you want to get as close as possible to the school, drop your kid off as efficiently as possible and, and get going. Like, is that why, mm-hmm. is that why people do this? Like they don't, they don't want to park down the block and walk down to the school. It, it's not even that far. I've even timed myself from getting there at the bell because I've, I've been running late a few times and I've had to park quite a ways up and it literally only takes me four to five minutes to walk down to the school. That's the longest I've ever had to walk. Okay, so, so where do you... It's not a time thing, it's just a lazy thing. <laughs> yeah, right. So where do you take this from now? I mean, you're obviously getting some a little bit of action here from the city. We've got this, this statement from them, so they obviously know about your concerns. Where do you go next here? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> yeah. Have you, try, have you tried talking to any of your city councillors or go down to City Hall? I or... have contact... The only... The, other than news stations, I've contacted... Um, the city and the RCMP and then the MP would that was it but that was last year and now I'm trying again because other parents have kind of pushed me again to keep trying because we've all given up we've we don't even know what else to do yeah and speaking of the RCMP did the police ever come by and monitor what's going on the police have yes um but that, that's the problem is that the cars will just not park there that day and then they'll leave. We yeah. even had, I even witnessed a parent arguing with the police officer because the police officer was just doing his job, making them not park there. She was getting angry with him for doing his job. Okay, so, Danielle, I, I congratulate you and I, I give you a tip of the hat here for speaking out. And I, I'm sure a lot of other parents share your concerns and I'm sure they're grateful to you too. I'm glad to see this, the city is responding here, at least with the, with this statement today, and I hope you get some action. And um, let's keep in touch, and we'll see if this improves. And thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. All right, here we go now with the story lifted right out of the script of a science fiction movie. Should we clone a woolly mammoth? How about resurrect the dodo bird or de-extinct the Tasmanian tiger? Is this actually possible? Should scientists really do it? Colossal Biosciences, that is the name of the company, that's trying to pull this off. They've made headlines around the world with their research and their efforts in this area. I love the name there, Colossal Biosciences. Remember the company in the Jurassic Park movies? InGen. I think Colossal Biosciences is actually a better name. They think they can, they can pull this off, and they think actually it would be a, a good thing to do. Now, you're going to get a big argument over whether we should do this kind of thing or not. I've got environmental ethics expert Christopher Preston standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to this report from CNN. De-extinctioning might not sound scientific, but that's what those who want to do it call it. It's a movement to try to bring back species that humans helped make extinct, like the dodo bird or Tasmanian tiger. It's not known whether people had anything to do with the demise of the woolly mammoth, but a recent discovery in Siberia has brought more weight to the debate over de-extinctioning. The mammoth is so well preserved by ice that some scientists think they might be able to clone it. According to a professor at the University of California, that's one possible way to de-extinct an animal. 
Cloning takes DNA from extinct animal cells, creates an embryo, and has a similar living animal carry and give birth to it. In the case of the mammoth, they'd probably use an elephant. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Christopher Preston. Christopher is an environmental ethics advisor, University of Montana, author of the book The Synthetic Age, Outdesigning Evolution, Resurrecting Species, and Reengineering Our World. And I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show. Christopher, thank you very much for coming on today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Okay, I love the story, and it's obviously got a lot of attention all around the world, and this company continues to make headlines. You know, recently we heard about the plans to resurrect a dodo bird. Christopher, is, first of all, is it possible to do this? I mean, I know there are there are stuffed dodo birds around, so they've probably got dodo DNA, right? Yeah, so there is the DNA hanging around in fragmented little strips and tiny pieces. But the first thing we should be really clear about here is you don't get the dodo back. You don't get the woolly mammoth back. What you get is a blend of an existing animal with some dodo DNA or some woolly mammoth DNA. So in that CNN report, it just mentioned the woolly mammoth is related to the Asian elephant. What you get back is an Asian elephant with more hair and some curved tusks. You don't actually get a woolly mammoth back. Right. And when I've been reading about the, this company's plans here, let, let's talk about the woolly mammoth for a minute, because they've talked about engineering these animals with some, I guess, some woolly mammoth DNA in there. And then they would potentially release these these new mammoths into into Siberia. And that somehow that would be, I guess, I guess they make an argument be good for climate change, right? Like, are you buying that argument? Well, you know, there's two sort of things that are exciting here. Like, one, it's yeah. exciting if you can get the animal back. And two, it's exciting if the animal can do something for you. And yeah. so this company is, is sort of exploiting both of those exciting possibilities. And, you know, in principle, if you had a heavy grazing animal uh, up in Siberia, you could do something that would be valuable for climate change. You could maintain the grassland instead of letting something revert to forest. And rather counterintuitively, a grassland is actually better for climate change because it, you get a wider surface which stays colder. Um, so, yes, you, you could get something back, but think how many woolly mammoths you'd need to do that in Siberia. And, you know, they don't uh, reproduce very quickly. So we're not really talking about herds and herds of woolly mammoth restoring the Siberian steppe. Right. How about, okay, when we talk about some of these other animals that have been highlighted by this company, you, we talked about the dodo bird, and I appreciate your, your explanation there. You're not getting back an actual dodo, but kind of a, like a, a blended animal if they actually can pull this off. So what would that be? It would be kind of like a new, a new species? Is that what it would be? Well, I, I think it would be more honest to say that, yes, what you're getting is kind of a hybrid species. So yeah. with the woolly mammoth, you, you blend it with the Asian elephant. With the dodo bird, you blend it with something called the Nicobar pigeon. Now, oh. a dodo is three foot tall and weighs 50 pounds. And a pigeon weighs a little less than a pound and a half. And so if you just sort of visualize, you know, how is this little pigeon going to give birth to a dodo bird? Um, you're not going to get a dodo bird uh, in any short order. So I think we need to be a little bit more realistic and, you know, perhaps just a tiny bit skeptical of the headline claims. Yeah. I was wondering about that too, like how realistic this is. I mean, this company is generating a lot of excitement and I, I suppose they're raising some money from investors too. But do you think you're a guy who follows this closely? Is this, is it possible at least in any time soon, or are we talking many, many years away? I think we're talking many years, and I think, as I as mentioned, even in many years, you're not going to get the same animal back. Now, you know, what they're doing, experimenting with gene editing and, and just sort of um, fooling around with genomes, there's useful reasons to do that. You can learn a lot about a species. You can learn a lot about diseases. Um, you can learn a lot about genetic diversity. And so the technology itself, I think, can be very beneficial for conservation, but the idea that the reason to do it is that you're going to de-extinct uh, a bunch of these signature animals, I think that's more about marketing than actually about science. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now, every time this topic comes up, people will make comparisons to the great movie Jurassic Park and some of the issues raised there. So 
I'm really curious in your thoughts on that. So let me let me play let me play a bit of the uh, an iconic part of the movie here. So you're going to hear John Hammond played by the actor Richard Attenborough and his his iconic exchange here with Doctor Malcolm, Doctor Ian Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum here, and they did they discuss the ethics of resurrecting a dinosaur here, cloning a dinosaur effectively. Here, have a listen. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Condors. Condors are on the verge of extinction. And if oh, I was no. to no, no, if I was to create a flock of condors on this island, you wouldn't have anything to say. No, hold on. This isn't this isn't some species that was obliterated by deforestation or or the building of a dam. Dinosaurs uh, uh, had their shot and nature selected them for extinction okay it's one of my favorite movies and i think that's a great scene in the movie christopher what do you think about that i mean it's a blockbuster movie that everybody loves but i thought it did raise some interesting ethical ethical points what do you think well well sure you know i actually think it would be kind of nice if we could bring species back from the brink rather than trying to go after species that have already gone over the brink and my latest book is called tenacious beast where I look at those animals that got really close and have come back. And I think actually there's a lot more to learn from species that have come back than perhaps from species that might have been long gone. And, and I think from a conservation standpoint, it will be a little bit better to focus on how to recover species, how to look after these tenacious beasts, rather than try to sort of dig some out of uh, distant history and, and imagine that we can somehow put them back on the surface of the planet. Yeah, like one of the things that points that was raised in that exchange there we we played from the movie where, you know, you got John Hammond says, well, if I was trying to clone a condor, which is on the edge of extinction, everyone would be celebrating and there wouldn't be any ethical quandary. Do you think that that's that's true? Like, I'm thinking about the uh, that very sad event a few years ago when the last northern white rhino died. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could could have saved that species? What do you think? Well, absolutely. You know, let's let's go after the species that are still around. Um, I mean, one interesting thing to think about with extinct species is um, we weren't very good at looking after them the first time around. Are we convinced we would do a better job this time? So I think it it makes sense to kind of put the effort where the where the possibilities are, um, rather than you know try to sort of dig something up from the past. Yeah. When this company talks about their plans. And we talked to, we talked a bit about the the woolly mammoth idea, and could you repopulate a woolly mammoth type animal in Siberia, and, and somehow that would be good for climate change, which I, I think is an interesting concept. What about these other animals that the company's talking about? When you're talking about a dodo bird or a Tasmanian tiger, is there any compelling reason that we should? even sort of start start monkeying around with these type of things? Like, is there is there any benefit to society or humanity from doing that? Or would it just be a curiosity you'd put in a zoo or something? Well, anytime <clears throat> you lose an animal from a landscape, you're losing the ecological service it provides. And so it certainly could be the case that having that animal back can put the system back into balance. And so the Tasmanian tiger is, you know, or was a carnivorous marsupial um, that certainly had an important ecological niche on the landscape there. Um, But then you sort of have to ask yourself, well, is that niche still available? Has something else kind of stepped in to take its place? Uh, And exactly what sort of ecological benefits would its return provide? And, you know, the dodo bird, a a giant flightless bird, on the island of Mauritius. I'm sure there would be some ecological benefits, um, but I think one has to kind of look at that argument and see how compelling it is. You know, the climate change argument with the woolly mammoth, that can feel pretty compelling. Um, The ecological benefits of a a dodo, I'm not sure if if that has quite the same sales pitch. What's so great about discovery, it's a violent, penetrative act that scars what explores what you call discovery. I call the rape of the natural world. I don't believe it. You're meant to come down here and defend me against these characters, and the only one I've got on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay. Okay. Another one of my favorite scenes there from Jurassic Park as we continue talking about de-extinction of species. I guess that's what it's been called by some. My guest, Christopher Preston, University of Montana. Just got a few more minutes uh, left with him. Do you think, like, when they make the argument around maybe creating this woolly mammoth type animal would be good for climate change, the company has also argued that this type of research could allow science to create animals that are more resistant to the effects of climate change. Is that possible, you think? Yeah, I mean, I do. Genetic editing presents the possibility of adding a trait or changing a trait that an animal has. And uh, if you were to genetic edit uh, an existing animal, in theory, you could create a change to that animal, and it would be more resistant to the challenges that climate change presents. And and to be honest, I think um, a lot of the, the money that's uh, been flowing into this company is money that perhaps is, is as motivated by uh, more traditional types of conservation needs than by de-extinction. I think de-extinction is sort of the uh, salesmanship piece of it, but right. the type of genetic technologies that would help with existing animals perhaps is where the real action lies. Yeah, like I wonder if, if they're thinking that uh, domesticated animals like ca- cattle or something or cows could be somehow re-engineered to be more resistant to a drier, hotter climate. You think that's something they have in mind? I think I think that's possible. I think that does raise other ethical questions as to yeah. how much manipulating of living animals we really should be doing. Um, yes. especially when we're really just manipulating them to better serve our purposes. So, you know, there, the ethics doesn't really begin and end with the extinction. It carries over into these other genetic editing possibilities. Right. And as we continue to follow this company's work here, I mean, do you, do you think that they're obviously raising some money? They say they've raised millions of, millions of dollars from, from investors. The work that's going on, is this... Uh, like, what do you think of the science that's, that's, that's being done here? This is really cutting-edge, legitimate research that's going on. It's real science. No, absolutely. Um, you know, they've got some fantastic scientists on the team, and, and they're doing really fantastic work. Um, you know, the only bit that I'm a little suspicious of is, is the marketing of it. If you look at the website, it's just fantastically polished, and it makes some tremendous claims about what can happen with mammoths and dodo birds and thylacines. Um, you know, the science is great and, and absolutely uh, full speed ahead on on the science of uh, conservation and, and how to make animals uh, more likely to survive. But I think I, I prefer it if they sort of tone down the de-extinction part of it. Okay, well, we certainly continue to follow it with great interest. Thank you very much for coming on today with your thoughts on it. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for giving me a call. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.